Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. It is great to be back recording with you. Super stoked to see so many notes from listeners about last week's podcast on doing real things in the world. Um, I'm stoked that that one took off because it's a topic that I think is important and so simple. Um, and uh, it's just great that people are loving it. Yeah, do real things. Get outside. Go for a hike. Go for a run. All good stuff. You know what's real? That people could do during, you know, this whole mess of a world we live in right now? Buy the practice of groundedness, read it, take notes in it, maybe listen on Audible, share it with their friends. Well, that is certainly one option that I think would make everyone's life better. But you know what else they could do to get community? They could join our Patreon group. We just actually, last night when we were recording this, we had a wonderful wonderful discussion with a couple dozen people on Ryan Holiday's latest book, Courage is Calling. And man, there are so many cool insights in there. And guess what? Every month we get together, new book, new topic. A lot of times we have the author come in um, as a guest to answer your questions, but more so we just have this community you know, thing where we talk about our struggles, talk about the ideas, talk about, you know, how it, a book resonated with us. So if you, if that sounds good to you, if you want to join, head on over to patreon.com backslash the growth equation. Goal is to get closer to real. So we're still on the internet, but it's a lot better than just emailing back and forth or, God forbid, trying to talk about something meaningful on social media. So we take it offline, well, offline, online, put it in a live Zoom video chat and um, and discuss really good books. So two ways to support us. Get the practice of groundedness. You can listen. You can read. Um, you can't yet transmit it via a chip in your brain, but down the road, that'll probably be a thing too. And check out our Patreon um, so we appreciate all you guys and your support and keeping this podcast a hundred percent independent and member funded. Part of the reason for that is we don't want to be sponsored by any of the new wave tracking devices, things that you wear on your wrist or your biceps or your finger that purport to tell you your readiness for the day, your heart rate variability, how well you sleep, all sorts of things. There's nothing inherently wrong with these trackers, but they can cause more harm than help in a lot of people. And we're going to dive into this topic today. Before we dive in, it's really clear that Steve and I are presenting one opinion here. Many of you might wear trackers. If they work for you, great. Don't fix it if it's not broken. We still encourage you to listen closely because I think a lot of people pick up these trackers and they only see the benefits or the purported benefits without realizing all the cost under the hood. And we're going to try to 
take those costs and make them visible so you can have a healthier, better relationship with your tracker if you have one. Maybe you end up throwing it in the garbage. Maybe if you don't have one, you decide today's the day you're going to get one. We want to take this topic and unpack it as best as we can. All right. I'm excited for this. I love uh, ranting. I'll, I'll try and hold the ranting to appropriate level. But, but tracking is something that, that I have like this love-hate relationship with because I love data. Like the science nerd in me is like, oh, this is great. Like we get to understand X, Y, Z, heart rate, heart rate va- variability, algorithm that tells me if I'm overtraining or not or if I'm recovered or not. But here's here's the problem. When we look at tracking, we have a we have twofold problem. A is the device accurate and reliable? Is it measuring what we think it's supposed to be measuring, right? And then two, the black box algorithm that takes this data, whether it's heart rate, whether it's heart rate variability, whether it's speed, GPS, whatever it is that they're measuring, does the algorithm that takes that concrete data and then translate it into, we'll call it actionable information, how accurate is that? How validated is that? How consistent is that at showing, you know, the... um the actionable item and and having it be reliable and i think at this stage you know we can talk about both of these but i think at this stage we are the hype and marketing is far 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 ahead of the accuracy and reliability in both of those two buckets right in a guiding heuristic that Steve and I have, and we say this on behalf of the whole growth equation, is the more alienated you get from the thing itself, the less likely the measurement score number is to be meaningful. So what do I mean by that? When you are running or riding a bike, you feel something in your body. When you are sleeping and you wake up, you feel refreshed, you feel tired. That is zero levels of alienation. That is you. Now, you can look at a power meter, which tells you how many watts are going into the pedals of the bike. You can look at a heart rate monitor that tells you your heart rate. You can look at a clock that tells you how long you slept for. That is one degree away from you. It's something that is playing back to you what you ought to be feeling yourself. Two levels, now you get the space between heartbeats or how heartbeat interacts with temperature and movement. In three, four, five, six levels, you get these algorithms that purport to boil down all of human functioning, well-being, and performance into a single score. And we have very little confidence that those things work. They are super enticing because really smart people like figuring out puzzles and thinking like engineers and problem solving. But at the end of the day, in our work as writers that review science, as coaches of high-performance people in various fields, how you function is super freaking complex. There are so many variables that go into how you function. Becoming attached 
to the output of a tracker, we believe incontestably lowers performance, even though so many of these vices state that they are meant to help performance. So Steve, let's start at the very bottom of the ladder, closest to going by feel, one degree up. Let's talk about step counters, stopwatches, clocks, power meters, and chest-worn heart rate monitors. When and how are these effective? All right. So one level. You know, I think the key here and how these are effective is these quite clearly show you or demonstrate some data that you then yourself can either interpret and see as actionable or not. So if I'm sitting here saying, okay, I've got a stopwatch that tells me how long I'm running, or if I know the distance, how fast I'm running around the track, like that's usable information. It's information that tells us it's, it's feedback though. And this is the key here is it's accurate, you know, relatively, um, it's accurate feedback then I, then I can process and see if this is meaningful or not. So if I go for I go to the track and I go run a mile and it says six minutes or five thirty, that gives me some data and feedback that that like is actionable and that I can track and measure and all that stuff. So I think it's it's same thing with heart rate, right? If we look at heart rate, it gives me some information that is accurate especially chest-worn strap, then, then I can interpret using, you know, my knowledge of physiology, maybe knowledge of heart rate at different uh, paces. And it gives me some feedback where I say, hmm, you know, that was either good or bad, or I'm going to ignore that, right? And the key here, I think, on this level is that um, it's simple enough where it leads to actionable change or it's simple enough where we understand that we can ignore it when we don't you know when we don't need it and let me give a quick example and then i'll turn it back over the watch if i'm looking at my watch and i'm looking at how fast i can run that or how fast i'm running that is really useful but if i'm in the middle of a race and my competitor throws in a surge and I'm trying to win that ra this race, I don't look down at my watch necessarily and say, oh man, this is a couple seconds faster uh, per mile than I had planned to. So I'm going to let my com competitor go. If I'm feeling good and if I'm feeling like, oh man, I got this, I'm going to ignore that watch or ignore that data in race, right? So I, I, I think that is the key there at this, this first level is it gives accurate information, but we're also not so tied to it that we can't ignore, move on, you know, forget about it if the circumstances uh, entail. I think there's one thing that you're missing out that I want to add as a piece of the puzzle, which is if you are newer to the pursuit or you've been doing it in a way that's broken it is extremely helpful to have these level one devices. So if you're a brand new runner doing your first marathon and your pace tells you that you're running 830, 
and you know that that's the pace that you should stick to, but you feel great because you're in mile two of the race and you want to start running six minute miles, the watch is really helpful to show restraint and hold you back because you haven't yet learned how you're supposed to feel in a marathon. If you're an elite runner running your 20th marathon and the watch is telling you you're running 550 pace, but on that day you feel like you could run 540, yeah, maybe you ignore the watch. Same thing goes with sleep. If your sleep has been utterly broken and you've been sleeping like crap for years and years and your new default level is kind of always being tired, logging your sleep, how many hours you spent in bed, how much time you spent tossing and turning, it could help if it shows you that, wow, I only really sleep four hours a night and maybe I should work on sleeping more. If you're already a pretty good sleeper, does that bend the needle? Probably not. So I think that these level one devices are most useful when you are relatively new at something and you are learning how to read your body or when something is broken and it's been broken for so long, your body doesn't even recognize it's broken and these devices can kind of shove it in your face and say, whoa, that's broken, like a step counter. If you feel active because for your whole life, you've only been taking 2,000 steps a day and you start wearing a step counter and it shows you that actually you're taking one-fifth the recommended steps, well, then it's really useful. If you take between 9,000 and 15,000 steps a day and you're wearing a step counter, does it really matter? Probably not. It can get in the way if you start stressing about getting your steps and circling around your driveway instead of reading to your kid to hit 10,000 because you're only at 9,300 doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. But if you need that kind of feedback, otherwise it all goes to crap, then sure, it's probably useful. So level one devices, they're tools. They're extremely helpful if you are a beginner in learning how something should feel. And they're extremely helpful if something is broken but you don't realize it's broken, they can help you realize it's broken. Anything else on these level one devices? And again, we're calling them level one because they're one level away from what you're feeling in your body. There's no algorithm. It's a single number that is accurate. So I think you're spot on. And I'm going to give one uh, tip for listeners that I think is important. And you gave this example with stepping or getting your steps. Uh, In the running world, you see this all the time with GPS devices. Where if you finish the run and it says, you know, 9.8 miles, then you see people do loops in the parking lot until that watch turns over to 10, right? And if you are experiencing that sort of behavior, and I've done it myself, like lots of people have, that should signal that you're on that edge of the device being in command instead of you. Like you're training towards the number, the device, the level one device, instead of doing what actually matters for performance or health or whatever it is your your goal is. So keep that in mind as kind of like a feedback check me- mechanism is, is the device staying in this like feedback mode Or is it becoming the driver of behavior? And if it starts to become the driver 
of the behavior in this negative uh, way, then that's a signal for you to step back, check, and maybe maybe go on some runs without the watch. I think a great exposure for performance anxiety in athletes is to finish your workouts at non-round numbers. So to log a 9.87 mile run, even if the schedule said it was supposed to be 10. And to feel the anxiety of not being exactly on your program, or if your total mileage for the week was supposed to be 44, but because of those rounding errors, you hit 42.87, don't feel the need to run another mile um, and sit with the anxiety that comes up. Before we move on to level two devices, Steve, do you use any level one devices in your life regularly right now? I mean, I use a, um, a stopwatch, old school watch for going on runs. Cool. So, I yeah. am thinking about my life the same. I just use a regular watch when I take my dog out for hikes uh, because I don't have a great sense of time. And generally, like there's something on the other end of it. So it's like walk up the hill for 35 minutes. Takes about 30 to walk back down the hill. Drive home. The whole thing's an hour and a half. Um, there have been times when I used a heart rate monitor, like, uh, just a $40 polar chest strap back when I was doing more endurance training. But now, um, that I don't have any performance goals in terms of aerobic fitness, like I don't need it to tell me that when I walk up that hill, I'm getting enough aerobic stimulus. If I do that three times a week, it's fine. I think if I was brand new to it. Maybe it would help to know that like I'm really stimulating my heart rate, but I'm not brand new to it so I can feel it. I mean, I literally can feel my heart rate get elevated. I sweat a little and I'm fatigued at the end where it's like, okay, this is probably equivalent to like a two to three mile run. And with the strength training I do, it's great. You know, it's interesting and not to go out on this tangent, but um, from what I've seen, especially in the running world, often what you see is amateurs who start to get serious use heart rate monitors. Well, the pros, the elites, the high levels never do. But I think a lot of that is what we said, where like yeah. these amateurs starting to get serious, like it's, it's helpful feedback. And then yeah. they get a level where they're pro and elite and they're like, all right, I don't need this. I can feel my body. It, yeah. But so there's another thing in there that I should say is that not just pro elite, I would say those who have been, who have grown up in the sport of running through high school, college, et cetera generally don't right because they're experts. and i yeah and i think the key there is and this is this is i th where i think heart rate monitors for amateurs can be very helpful but you need to be aware that you're trying to make that transition that high level or even just dedicated runners who have done it for a while have naturally naturally made so use it if if it gives you comfort, if it helps, but like understand that like you're trying towards transitioning to where you can use it if you want, but it's not the necessity that you might see it as. Right. And the last thing I'll throw in is um, if we have any people on the show that are hearing this and considering using a heart rate monitor to track your aerobic activity please, please, please do not pay any attention to the formula of it they tell you for figuring out your max heart rate. Max heart rate is on a wild bell curve with 
a lot of standard deviation based on individuals. And those formulas are, I was going to say at best directionally correct, but not even. And I think I'm the prime example. I have a pretty low resting heart rate and my max heart rate is probably 170 beats per minute. According to those formulas, it should probably be, depending on the formula, closer to like 190, 195 beats per minute. If I were to try to get my heart rate there for a medium workout, I would destroy myself every single day. So if you're training with any kind of percent of max heart rate, you actually have to find out what your max heart rate is. Um, And that's hard (laughs) to do because it sucks to hit your top ends because it's pretty painful. So then it begs the question, if you're not willing to find out what your max heart rate is by doing a workout that gradually elevates it until you can't go anymore, then why are you using a heart rate strap to begin with? And I think that's really important um, for people to hear. Great. The only thing I'd, I'd add there is also for my fellow heat and humidity mm. folks, heart rate kind of goes out the window when you train in the summer in Houston, Texas or similar places. So don't listen to it or else you'll be walking. All right. Yes. So now let's get into, let's call them level two devices, which are things that have various algorithms that then purport to tell you how you are performing on something. And these algorithms can be simple. They can draw from like one or two measures, or they can be very complex. So simple would be heart rate and body temperature. More complex would be heart rate, body temperature, breathing frequency, micro movements, um, and so on and so forth. So these are a lot of the current wrist wearables that provide various data that is supposed to help you in your health and performance. Yep. I think, I think, you know, here, whenever we get to the algorithm stage, right, we're in, we're interpreting these body signals and spitting out some sort of actionable either number or score or advice, we have to be really careful. A, because most of us don't know what goes into these algorithms, right? Um, and B, the whole accuracy, validity, all of all of those things. Um, a good friend and who also happens to be literally one of the world's best sports scientists, Trent Stellingworth, uh, tweeted the other day, about some of these algorithms and he says i haven't seen any algorithm fully validated to consistently show overtraining full stop i'm highly suspicious of anything black box and if i put my sports science hat on if i put my coaching hat on whether that's athletes or just people in their daily life anything with a algorithm i my antenna goes up I start to be skeptical. And there's reason for that because right now the algorithms just aren't there. And I'll go into the exercise world 
But if you wear any sort of, you know, fancy GPS watch or anything from any sort of company, they have various algorithms to predict your recovery, predict your training adaptation, to predict your performance variables. And I've worn, you know, just about every single one out there. And inevitably, you find simple, you know, uh, simple activities or simple moments where the algorithm just is so far off that it makes you question everything. I'll give a couple examples and then turn it over to you, Brad, for some insight on this stuff. But here's here's an example from a couple a uh, couple months ago. I was coming back from a couple weeks off before, you know. Taking time off, I was probably in, I don't know, maybe like 415 mile shape to give a round figure number. Took a couple weeks off, started back up, um, was running, you know, four miles, easy, slow, eight minute mile pace, a couple, maybe four or five days a week. And literally for over a month in doing this very easy training, my watch, like I was at the highest level of quote unquote overtraining, right? Which was crazy, you know? And in another wearing a different company's watch on GPS, back when I was coaching collegiate athletes, when we're training with the athletes, training with especially the top end females and some of the guys, and my watch would consistently predict my race performance and therefore my training zones to be way slower than I was capable of. I mean, for a while, there was a running joke on the team because it kept predicting a 1745 5K, which is around what some of the women would run. And they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm faster than you you are because your watch says you can run this. And meanwhile, I'd go and run tempo runs with the guys where I'd cross the 5K mark significantly faster and the watch prediction wouldn't update. So just a couple quick examples there. But like anytime we have this like black box algorithm, like you got to be really suspicious. It's tempting to trust because it's fancy because it spits out an easy, actionable, you know, number or thing that tells you if you're training right or overtraining or recovered. But the reality is the accuracy on these things, both from practical experience and then from, again, uh, sports science data just isn't there yet. Yeah. So I have a couple of, um, of things to say here that are more broad And then I have an example. So the first is that human performance in health is extremely complex. We cannot yet science the shit out of it. So many variables impact how you will perform on one given day that an algorithm that draws off of your heart rate, your movements, all these things, even if the algorithm is perfect and even if the measurements are accurate, it just scratches the surface of what actually goes in to how someone can perform on a given day. I have a good friend that wore a wrist tracker that I will not name that gave him a readiness score of like way in the red, basically told him to stay in bed. And he was having a relatively stressful time of his life. He runs a gym, 
it's the pandemic. So they had to shut down the gym, migrate to trying to run classes online to stay in business, had a puppy, all sorts of stuff. But that day he's like, you know, I need to do something for myself. I'm going to go train hard. He does the same climb on his bike and he's a good cyclist two times a year, peak performance type test. He crushed his PR on a day when his device told him to stay in bed. So how do we make sense of this? The only way to make sense of it is that clearly he shouldn't have stayed in bed that day. Now, did he get sick or injured the next day? No, not at all. Guy's an exercise science. He's got advanced education in it. He said, you know, I was skeptical about the device to begin with, and now I can throw it away. And, and that's what he went on to do. It is really alluring, as Steve said, to become a slave to these devices, because especially for smart people, smart people like to figure stuff out, and they like to be able to make sense of things and to problem solve. And so many of these devices create the illusion of problem solving your way into health and performance. There is so much mystery in peak performance. In anybody that's really walked the path, people that have competed at the highest level for a long period of time, they will tell you about all the mystery that's involved. I have yet to meet a world-class caliber athlete that actually wears a wrist or finger device based on an algorithm to help them perform. I know plenty whose podcasts are sponsored by them, but then when you talk to these people, they don't wear the thing. Why? Because they said that the thing doesn't help. And in many cases, the thing holds them back. So let's talk about how the thing can hold you back. The first way in the most common is you start obsessing over a score instead of focusing on what's actually happening in your life. If the goal of life is to get a high readiness score, sure, wear the device and dedicate your life to the readiness score. But that shouldn't be the goal of life for most people. Can't really think of anyone whose goal of life that is. If the goal of life is to have your device tell you that your sleep quality was X, guess what? You're going to spend a lot of time stressing about your sleep quality. And you know what the number one detriment to good sleep is? Stressing about how well you'll sleep. Multiple studies have now shown that devices that purport to help people sleep more often than not hurt sleep quality because they lead to an obsessive thinking about sleep. Now, it's not to say that if you're a terrible sleeper, a device can't help you because it provides some accountability, but it's a pretty fine line between helping you and hurting you when you think that it's helping you. And the last thing that I'll say is the whole like global score. Well, in the case of my friend, Zach, if he would have listened to it, he wouldn't have crushed a PR that day. But the flip side is also true. Sometimes the device might tell you that you're really ready to go crush it, but you don't feel like you are, but you override your feeling and you listen to the device. And that's when you rip a hamstring or you get the flu or you work your way into overtraining system. Especially because the human physiology and biology and stress response is so complex. So for example, most people think of a time to rest when your heart rate is relatively elevated. It's like the Steve will know better than me. Is that sympathetic or parasympathetic 
Sympathetic. Oh, sympathetic. So that is what everyone thinks. Oh my gosh, my heart rate is high. I need to rest. And that can be true. But the sign of actual severe overtraining is a heart rate that is too low. So you're going to have a device that tells you that you're just getting fitter. You're really well rested. Go crush it. When in fact, the reason that you can't elevate your heart rate isn't because you're fit. It's because you are clinically overtrained and in need of medical care. How is a device going to know if someone's getting fitter or if they're just truly overtrained? It can't. So these are the limits that you don't hear about on the fancy brochures. And sure, these devices might solve a problem, but it certainly seems that they're creating more than they solve. Yeah, and e- e- you're spot on, Brad. I mean, like the overtraining a- thing is, is a real thing that concerns me because very few people know this, and it's not just in sport, but like burnout, like just total body shutdown. Yes, first, you generally have a period where your heart rate's running high, but depending on the person, that period's not very long, and then the exact opposite happens. Everything comes way down, and that can look a lot like fitness, and in some cases, it is fitness, but in some cases, it's overtraining, and the device can't tell you which one it is. It doesn't know how you feel. It's not a coach that's monitoring you, so what does it say? It says, oh, you're getting fitter. Maybe, but maybe you're actually just boxing yourself And if you think you're getting fitter and you keep pushing, you're going to end up in the hospital. Yeah, you know, (laughs) I I, I think you're spot on. And I think what what I like to help listeners understand is that we often get the simplistic, like easy to understand message on how these things work. Okay. Okay whether we're talking heart rate, whether we're talking heart rate variability. Brad just mentioned the sympathetic, you know, versus parasympathetic, you know, nervous system. And often we get the simple message that, oh, parasympathetic means like heightened arousal and stress. And parasympathetic, like when that goes up, that's your like recovery. Like there's truth to that on a global scale. But if you dive into how the body actually works, like, gosh, it's way more complex than that. Okay, way more complex. I mean, it, it's mind-numbing if you go into the pathways for these, these, these uh, physiological uh, responses, how complex it is. Okay, and it's not just... You know, we look at things like uh, arousal, for example, this idea of high or low, like good or bad. Um, Sometimes a little bit of arousal or often a little bit of arousal is a good thing, right? For a performance standpoint. Also depends on like how that nervous system activity, what it's kind of downstream hormonal consequences are, right? We don't just have this singular monolithic stress response. There are literally, the body is smarter than you give it credit for. It almost has all these like levers that it can pull to get to the same kind of activation state. But some might rely more on this like combination of adrenaline and cortisol. Some might rely more on some testosterone release or whatever have you, this, this variation. And we've done a pretty good job of classifying the different kind of responses, but still there's a myriad of them. There's not two. So 
without going too much further into the complexity of it, I think it's really important to understand that the like layman's term, the marketing for much of these devices is is simplified to a great degree. Too much. Even too much. Huh? Can I just give like a, a really like quick example, Steve, to make this real? So the sleep trackers, my understanding is they operate based on body temperature and micro movements. The number one cause of like really bad exhaustion and sleep disorder in America is sleep apnea. That is a breathing disorder where you wake up at the millisecond level to catch your breath and it is not associated with movement or with a change in body temperature. So these devices that purport to measure sleep completely miss out on the number one sleep disturbance. They could tell someone they're sleeping great when that person is waking up a thousand times throughout the night. And I know someone that this happened to. They kept pushing and they ended up like experiencing severe depression because they basically hadn't slept for a year and a half, but their device told them they were sleeping great. So they thought that they must just be a wreck and they kept pushing. And finally, they got diagnosed with sleep apnea, got a CPAC machine, all their problems were solved. They were waking up a thousand times in the middle of the night. Device can't tell you that. In the words of my coach, who I had a conversation with a couple uh, months ago about this, people will often go to her and say, well, let me send you like my sleep file so you can see how I've been sleeping. And she says, unless it's an EEG of your brain, I don't want to see it. Because that's the only sleep file that can show how someone's sleeping. These things can be um, useful in some cases, but not in others. And unless you know what's going on with that person, you can't know. So if someone has like a sleep disorder where they're moving a lot in their sleep, yeah, movement's going to be a really good proxy. But that's just one proxy. So how do you measure the others? You're going to have people sleep with like something that can measure their breathing Okay, so now you're asking, like, it just, it, it, it is very, very, very hard to do this. And I think we get a lot of false certainty from any level two device. I mean, that's ultimately where I'm going with, with, with this. Um, so, okay, knowing that we were going to record this podcast, I texted another friend that I respect a ton that's big time in the high performance world. Um, I'm not going to name this person. And ask this person about their experience with level two, level three devices. And what they said is that they themselves don't use one, but they've seen a lot of people they work with greatly limit alcohol intake attributed to wearing these devices. So let's talk about that for a moment. Um, presumably what's happening is when people drink, the device is telling them that they're sleep isn't as good or that their heart rate variability is too high or their resting heart rate is too high and what have you. And then these people stop drinking or they don't drink as much. I think that's a huge net positive. The question, of course, is why isn't it enough for someone just to tell you that like any more than a drink a day is, is not good for you, so you shouldn't do it? Like, Why do you need to pay for a $400 to $500 device to tell you that? But if that's what it takes, that's fine. I have a coaching client who wears a, a finger tracking device and knows how I feel about this, yet he insists that the only thing he uses it for 
is to see how bad drinking is for his body. And as a result, he doesn't drink because he knows if it's on and he drinks, he'll get like a bad score. So, okay, sure. Keep using it. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you're, I, I think that's what it comes down to though. Is like that example of drinking is like the example we gave of using heart rate for the beginner. Right. Because it's like, okay, the beginner, the novice, like can't read his body, like needs these external like reminders or whatever have you to keep them centered and headed in the right direction. The elite performer or not even the elite, the seasoned performer says, oh, yeah, of course, drinking alcohol makes me feel like crap the next day. Like, I'm not going to do that when I'm trying to perform. Right. So I, I, I think if you, you know, where I come down on some of the stuff and, you know, I'm level two, three devices, I'm not a huge fan of. But if it it improves actual functional performance or leads to you having some uh, pushing or nudging you in the right direction of something simple, like not consuming a ton of alcohol to impair sleep, et cetera then that's uh that that can be a fine thing. The key there is you don't make the next jump from oh this thing told me alcohol is bad so I'm going to stop consuming alcohol and then I'm going to listen to it and be like the slave to it where it starts to become the driver instead of the thing providing the feedback that then you get to interpret and decide on. Yep. I think that that's spot on. And I do think that even then it can be helpful to try to have the confidence to eventually move beyond the thing. So to internalize that, hey, when I have more than a drink or two drinks or one drink, whatever it is, it's not good for me. So I'm just not going to do it except when I really want to. Because, hey, you know, for some people having three drinks once a month, your score is not great, but will it actually have an impact on your life? I don't know. I'm not a hepatologist, a, a liver doctor, but probably not to the extent that you think it will. Now, if you're having two to three drinks multiple times a month, yeah, that's probably not good. Um, in addition to the beginner, I think like if you're someone that struggles from like a substance use disorder and five beers a day just feels normal, then yeah, having something give you blaring red flashes that say you're destroying your body can be really helpful. Um I've yet to see data that shows that these things help people with true substance use disorders. Cause I think the whole thing that makes it a disorder is someone knows that it's harmful for them, but they continue to do it anyways. Um, but yeah, if it's helpful, then, then it's helpful. Um, so long as it's accurate. And this is something that we also haven't touched on. So we're talking particularly about things that you wear on your wrist or your arm or your finger. A lot of these things are driven by heart rate or even more nuanced heart rate variability. Steve nor I haven't worn one of these in years, so we can't comment on the latest versions. All we can say is that a few years back when we did both try them and the more recent studies on them from that time period showed that if you look at your heart with an echocardiogram, so actual like imaging of your heart in real time with one of those devices on, the variability is enormous to the point where you can't trust the device. So I would say that if you're going to invest 
in really listening to a score that one of these things is giving you, I would go out and get a polar chest heart rate monitor, which has been validated against echocardiogram to be effective for 40 bucks. And I would wear your wrist, finger, biceps, arm device at the same time as your heart rate monitor for a 24 to 48 hour period of time doing what you normally do. So sleep, exercise, whatever it is, hang out on the couch, work, and then compare those numbers. And if there's a lot of variability, then I'd strongly recommend that you return the ring or wrist strap or arm strap because then the whole thing goes to shit. And it's crazy to think that people don't do this before they start trying to design their whole life around a score from something that draws on heart rate when there's been very little, if any, solid data to show that these heart rate numbers are accurate because the further you get from the heart, the harder it is to measure heart rate, especially during movement, which are what these things are really focused on helping you with. Right. Exactly. I think that's step number one is, you know, if you if you want to go down this route, especially with the algorithm wrist or finger or whatever, um, you know, do validate it against the heart rate strap. I mean, like this, the, the, whatever the cheapest polar heart rate strap is, you know, old school where you spit on your fingers to moisten the little sensors and then it kind of sticks to your chest and there's a single number on the watch and it's your heart rate. Wear that versus the device and see the variability. And maybe the devices have improved a lot. And if they have, that's great. It, it can give you more confidence in the heart rate, not necessarily the algorithm, but at least in the heart rate measure. And, and this is no different than actually what we used to do when GPS watches first came out. Yeah. Right? Is like I would go down the, the track or go to some measured, uh, preferably relatively straight road and run my measured mile and then look at my GPS and see where it was off and what direction. And that gave me some ideas. And then even now, like I have GPS watches, like I'll occasionally wear them. Um, (laughs) But I know when it's going to be relatively accurate and when it's not on the loops that I run. So for I'll give you some examples on the the road loop or the bike path loop, which has like a clear view of the sky. You know, my GPS is going to be, you know, within, you know, five, 10 seconds of a mile, which is, you know, as long as I'm not trying to get a mile PR, like it's, it's relatively acceptable. If I go into the forest in the woods and go on a run, like goodbye, you know, I didn't, can talk- didn't a bunch of NBA basketball teams once consult with you about using GPS watches during their practice. And you're like, are you effing kidding me? You guys are inside a building and these players are like changing directions every two seconds. Yes. I always have a, you know, I have, I, I have. Did you get them to stop using the GPS devices? Yes. I, I have problems with team sports who use GPS. I think again, can be, can be very good on a global sense. Right. But when we're looking at GPS for quick changes of directions, like Again, maybe accuracy has improved and the satellites are super great right now, but quick changes of directions like don't work well, even with relatively high sampling rates, because, um, you know, I mean, and don't be tricked tr- by organizations that say that they use all this stuff to great effect. Steve can fill me in more if I misspeak because I don't want to, but my understanding is that. There was a specific organization in cycling that focused on like marginal gains driven by technology 
and all their riders started crushing it. And then it turned out that basically everybody was doping. Is that accurate? Yes. That's yeah. Accurate. So that's a problem. Um, another example is all public record. Dave Asprey, the guy behind like the Bulletproof brand that has all these like pathways and complex things to get stronger. And he looks like a really strong dude for being in his 50s. And he uses synthetic testosterone. So is it the butter in your coffee elevating your mTOR pathway that makes you strong? Or is it the synthetic testosterone? My bet is on the latter. But you don't see that. You hear about marginal gains driven by technology or a specific pathway. And, and here's my advice. So I'm going to jump back or step back. Here's my advice if you're considering all of these things is talk to people with skin in the game where performance matters in that particular parameter. So for instance, if you're looking at um, measuring heart rate variability, for example, on to track you know, your performance and your overtraining or just your general score of readiness, which they give you, where would you go to check that out? Well, I would talk to elite level endurance athletes who are pushing the bounds of recovery and training and see if they actually use this stuff to guide their training. More often than not, right now, you'll see that they don't. I mean, it might they might wear one occasionally. They might be sponsored by one. They might claim they do. But if you talk to them, if you watch elite runners, for example, the world I know, like they really don't. They might use it every once in a while, but what they do is they listen to their experience, they listen to their body, all that good stuff. Why? Because fatigue is so complex. We don't even, I'm going to speak some truth here. We don't even have a great model for adaptation and fatigue in exercise physiology. Like we have a, an idea, a couple models that do a decent job, but in terms of predicting adaptation and fatigue from workouts, we don't have a very good model yet. It's nope. just not there. And so I can speak to the history of this, not the science, but um, a big part of the history there is, again, like what sounds good versus what's real. The whole you train hard for three weeks and then you take one week off was developed by Eastern European countries in the height of the steroid boom. So is that how you adapt to exercise or was their steroid cycle to inject themselves once a month with steroids? <laughs> like what was actually the cause of the thing? And, you know, to what you said, Steve, about like the elite athletes, it's no wonder that the people that these devices are marketed to tend to be like really smart people in fields other than elite sport because they want to be better. They want to push boundaries. They're used to figuring things out. So you get a whole bunch of people in tech or in business um, that are even some physicians that like really start to buy into this stuff um, again, because it makes a lot of sense. But then when you talk to the people that are actually doing it at the highest level or close to the highest level, they will couch a recommendation to use one of these with a whole bunch of nuance, or they'll just tell you it's bullshit. Don't use it at all. It, it, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, all, all I would say is that, um, that it's very easy to fall for and get seduced by these fancy things. 
and I get it. I'm not trying to discount everything and, you know, throw a bunch of shade or whatever have you. But a couple years ago, when all these fancy devices were starting to come out, I took a couple of them, you know, had some athletes with a couple of them and had them wear them for a training cycle, you know, specifically measuring the fanciest stuff, which is like the recovery HRV. And we also, you know, what did we do? We tracked how they felt, their report of like their perceived effort, their report of their perceived recovery. Uh, We also tracked sleep, all these different factors. And then I rated, along with the athlete, every single hard workout, right? From a performance standpoint, was it better than expected? Did it predict, like, was it worse? This is very easy to do in running. Was it a good workout, bad, indifferent? And same with races. And what ended up correlating best with performance wasn't any of the fancy variables. It was how the athlete reported they felt before training each day. Just how they felt. And these were high level, you know, uh, endurance athletes, runners. And I'm not saying that the algorithms won't ever get there, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe this will change in 10 years, 20 years. I don't know. But what I do know is that the science is young. The body is super, super complicated. I'm not saying, hey, don't listen to anything, but it's so complicated and we simplify it to get an easy, usable answer. But even if you look at the literature, the scientific literature on things like recovery, overreaching, overtraining, HRV, like it is littered with with, um, examples and research papers that show that You know, an increase in HRV shows overtraining. No, a decrease in HRV shows overtraining. Why don't we have the simple answer that says, hey, when this happens, then we should recover. Or when this happens, we've adapted. Because the body, we're talking about one of the most complex systems we have, right? The human body and physiology adapting to stressors which includes not only physical stressors, but mental, emotional, psychological stressors, which, you know, dump on top of it and trigger some of this nervous system slash, you know, hormonal stress response. So is it any wonder there isn't a simple answer that we can't, you know, delineate no, it? there's not, but so. people just want it. And that's the problem. Yep. And I'm, I, I saw just before we recorded the podcast today that one of these like uh, fancy algorithmic based devices is making a big deal about how women are underrepresented in research studies of performance. And the menstrual cycle has a huge impact on energy and performance. And they are on a mission now to like start researching more and learning more and incorporating that. That all sounds great on the surface. I completely agree that women are underrepresented in, in performance science studies and that there are completely different physiology, biology, hormones, what have you. The problem is now you're adding another super complex variable into the algorithm, which is like, where is someone at in their menstrual cycle? Well, what if they're taking birth control? What kind of birth control? Like there are so many different things. And the point is, the more things that you put in to make the algorithm robust, the more chance that there's going to be leaks And those leaks compound and suddenly the single score or the couple of scores are completely off by like exponential marks. So Steve just went through, you know, 
didn't throw shade. I'm not going to throw shade. I'm sure I've fallen into this trap elsewhere. But if you are really smart and you fancy yourself as smart and dedicated to performance, it makes sense that you want to wear one of the things and you're going to buy what they're selling you. But take it from us who are like really at the elite level of this stuff. It's bullshit. And the only analogy I have is sometimes I get tempted because I don't know much about it in finance to like, you know, do like fancy investment schemes and nothing fancy, but like just different strategies. And then I talk to like my financial advisor who I trust and who I think is world class. And you know what he says? He's like, invest in growth companies very gradually over time. There'll be lows in the market. There'll be highs in the market. As long as like free market capitalism continues as the predominant system, you'll probably be better off 40 years ago than if you didn't invest. That's it. Because he's really good at what he does. Um, and, and that's what you tend to And I'm to not see- saying that you're an idiot if you use these. Because I'm sure some of our listeners like have paid a lot of money for this. I, I'm just offering like a strong counterpoint to the second, third wave algorithmic trackers. I got nothing wrong with those first wave things for the uses that we mentioned. But the more complex it gets, the better and more encompassing it sounds, the more reassurance it gives us for the same human anxieties that Steve and I have. We don't want to die. We don't want to perform poorly. We don't want to become unhealthy. But wearing a thing on your wrist that has a super complicated black box algorithm is not going to be the answer to those questions. This is as old as the fountain of youth, which was around five centuries before Jesus Christ. People always wanted the thing that is going to unlock energy, performance, and health. And it is the same stuff, just in different packaging. And before we wrap this up, because you sorry, everybody, (laughs) before we wrap this up, because you brought this up, and I think this is a great demonstration of where this can go off the rails when we take something super complicated and we simplify it. A couple weeks ago, there was a story with Oregon track and field about their track coaches and weight uh, females, uh, the weight of females. I suggest you reading the article if you want to go deeper, but one of the things they mentioned in there is one athlete reported the track coach saying, asking about the athlete's period and their menstrual cycle and whether they were on birth control. And this is a great example of taking something complex that we really, again, is understudied that a lot of variables go into it and simplifying it because these coaches, and I've been in the track world, this happens, is they often think, oh my gosh, menstrual cycle tied to performance, like wrong time, bad equals bad performance, or wrong birth control equals weight gain and bad performance. So I've got to get a handle on that. When the reality is, and you, Brad doesn't know, I don't know, we're not in this field, but if you talk to any physician who works in, you know, and understands the complexity of the female body, it is not that simple. You're talking about a very complex action, right? And we we get stuck with these simple ideas of this is good for performance or recovery, this is bad for recovery. And in this case, especially around menstrual cycles, like 
it can lead to lasting damage of perhaps pushing someone down the line of not doing what is healthy for them or restricting their eating, which, you know, causes them to disrupt their cycle and get um, what's called reds. So again, relative energy deficiency for those that don't know. Yep. So again, a little out there, but like this is kind of the end consequence of taking something that's extremely complex, creating a simple narrative around it where it's good or bad. And when we lose all the nuance and give overthinking to the device or the tracking or the the thing spitting out the algorithm, like it can end up hurting us over the long haul. All right. Well, we just want to thank you guys for listening, guys and gals for listening. Um, Our job at The Growth Equation, we see it as kind of centering you in reality. No BS. It's why we don't take sponsors so that we can cover topics like this. We're not saying, hey, throw away your tracking device if it brings you value. But really, you know, step back, ask yourself, does this really bring me value? Is this really improving either my performance or my life? Or is it just something that fools me into thinking that or fools me into feeling like I have more control over something that I really don't? Yep. I think that you nailed it in a nutshell. And then sitting with that um, that human fragility of not having as much control as our consciousness wishes that we'd have. Uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but um, I think it was Walt Whitman that talked about like, the biggest challenge of being a human is to be in this vast universe and have consciousness. And pretty sure what Walt Whitman means is that there's so much mystery around us. And then we have this consciousness that yearns to figure everything out. And that creates a lot of tension. And I think in the world of health performance, um, we're seeing that tension manifest in all of these devices that then are sold by companies that are trying to churn a profit on um, a lot of false promises. And as Steve said, maybe they'll improve one day. Um, But until then, the stuff that actually works is really cheap and it's really simple, but cheap and simple doesn't mean easy. It's learning to listen to your body. It's realizing that life is long, that there are going to be highs, there are going to be lows, developing a solid support system to help hold you during the lows and to provide some gravity during the highs in gradually improving, moving up three steps, down two, up one, down two, up four, up two, down four. That's how progress works. It's not sexy, but it's the truth. And only use these devices if they truly help you on that path. And if you're changing your behavior as a result, and if they are not causing additional stress in your life. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.